Listener Production. It was such a demonstration for me of the kindness of strangers that we often invest in relationships where it's like a give and take. There's some kind of an agenda that's transactional. There was nothing transactional about it. At the end, I thanked her and I said, oh, can I take you out for lunch or something? And she just said, no, just, just be happy. And I don't even have her number. I don't even know her surname. But she was there for me. It taught me the power of kindness. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but in this time of social isolation, I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. Actor, author, activist Madeline West is a brave, open-hearted woman. You probably recognise her beautiful face from Neighbours and other Aussie dramas. She recently turned her world inside out and upside down because she wasn't happy and realised she was an actor in her own life. I wanted to talk to Madeline about how she managed to restart her life. And also, did I mention she's a mum to six kids? This woman has such a story to tell. Maddie, Madeline, what do you like? Because most people call me Jess apart from my mum and my husband. They call me Jessica, even if I'm not in trouble. Oh, but everyone else calls stern, yes. But everyone else calls me Jess. So what do you yes. like to be called? I'm Mads. Mads. When I'm in America, it's Maddie. Everyone's Maddie. And when I'm in the UK, it's Madeline. It's Madeline. So if I'm here in Oz, it's Mads. Oh, well, Mads, there's something I think really special about you. I last spoke to you, it was six years ago now. Oh my God, what? Yes, can you believe it? It was when your book came out, (gasps) Six Under Eight, and absolutely wowed the pants off me then because you are, you're funny, you're smart, you're passionate, you're just amazing. Oh my gosh, you know what? This is what women need to be saying to each other on a regular basis. We need to stop selling ourselves out there. I don't want to get onto some bent, but you know, kind of, to, we often frame ourselves to appeal to the patriarchy because that's the system that we have to fit within. But when women affirm other women and the choices they make and the risks they take and the challenges that they overcome, then my God, we are, we're on the right path. But and I, yes, you're amazing. You know oh. why? Because you're so real. Like, I just love your outfits. The, the first time I saw the spaghetti hat, I'm like, this is my kind of girl. I was like, this is a spaghetti hat. Just taking the opportunity to be inventive and creative within your own life and just laugh at your own experience. God, that's what the restart is all about from my perspective. That's what it's all about. You've got this amazing podcast called Restart and I love the, the concept behind it that all of us need a bit of a restart in our lives and it can be something minor to something yep. pretty huge. And, I mean, let's face it, for you, you've been through a number of restarts, haven't you? 
I have. And the pivotal thing for me was to acknowledge that change is uncomfortable, but change is sometimes necessary because we often reach a point where we look at ourselves in the mirror and don't recognise who we are anymore. And we've only got this one life to live. And we set out on that life with big dreams and big ambitions and we do it to our own children, you know, hearing the rhetoric of saying to your kids, you can be anything, reach for the stars, but we ourselves are happy to accept a life that doesn't align with where we thought we would be but pays the bills and gets us through the day And I realised I don't want to live a life anymore where I'm waking up first thing in the morning just basically going through the motions to get myself back into bed. That's not a life. I need a life that fits me. I need to invest in the dreams I had, the ambitions I had, which might go beyond people's expectations of me and perceptions of me, but is true to me. And that required a restart. And it comes with risk and it comes with fear, but it comes with rewards. And it comes with knowing that my life fits me. And I guess if I'm going to put it in a nutshell, it's a little metaphor I've created. If you've got a beautiful suit or a dress that you love, it's your number one in your wardrobe, and one day you realise it doesn't fit, do you just keep walking around it feeling silently uncomfortable or do you alter it to fit you? Do you alter yourself to fit it? Or do you go out and buy a new one? See, those three options are what we would do because we're practical and we're logical. We'd go out and buy a new one or fix it, fix the situation. It all requires change. It all requires changing something to make the situation work. But so often we find ourselves in lives that don't fit us, that don't satisfy us, that sitting on the couch eating ice cream next to a person that we don't understand anymore who we love but we might not even like. Going through the motions of doing things that don't bring us satisfaction, doing a job for all the wrong reasons, hitting a health crisis that is going to make us question how we treat our bodies, hitting a career crisis and going, this job is not where I'm supposed to be. Having a complete identity review and and asking yourself, who am I And why am I here and what am I doing? What is my purpose? All of these things trigger a restart. And if you can embrace the change, my God, what you can achieve is exponential. Well, you're living proof of that, but I think it is though very hard to embrace the change. It takes extraordinary courage because many of us do live half lives. We do sort of muddle through and think, oh, I'll just put up with that. How were you able to be courageous enough to say, this suit doesn't fit me anymore. I'm out to buy a new suit. I need to totally change my life. You didn't just change it a bit. You totally turned it upside down. Well, the first thing I did was I asked people their advice. And this is what we do. We walk around going, hi, how are you? I'm great. We should catch up for that drink sometime. Yep. See you next week. Instead of going, I'm really upset. I'm distressed, I'm depressed. I hope and pray that the pandemic has opened up those conversations more than ever before. But we do have a tendency to put our guard up and make it look like everything is all right and suffer in silence. I chose not to do that anymore. I chose to, and I'm sure I gave people the irrits here and there, but I chose to trust in my friends and my friendships and my family and my loved ones to open up conversations about where I thought I would be, what I felt I hadn't achieved, that the things I had achieved were wonderful but had a time and a place that were no longer relevant to me and 
asking people, what would you do in my situation? And I got advice from a whole different slew of friends. Now, I'm not, I'm the first to say that opinions are like buttholes. We all have one. (laughs) Some are louder and more offensive than others and some shouldn't be aired in public, but everyone has one. But I realised the way we spend a lot of time worrying about what others think about us and not what we think of ourselves. Now, what other people think about me is, is none of my business. But if what I think about me affects how they think about themselves, then we're opening up a conversation. And I chose to tap out of a life that didn't fit me. And there were struggles and there were hardship and there were tears and, and pain. But on the other side of it, the suit that I made out of my life fits me. It fits me. It might need to alter a little bit as I evolve and I discover new things, but I'm now living a life that I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be a part of. And it looks completely different from the existence I had. But for all the moments of doubt that I still have, I'm so true to myself that I can accept, well, that doubt is necessary. And I don't have regrets because regrets I think are redundant. I have an awareness that there were costs for me to get here, but they're necessary costs. They brought me pain. They brought people I love pain, but they brought me and them to where we are. So they were necessary. So let's then talk about those costs because you decided to leave your marriage. We were never married, but yes, 16 years together. 16 years. So you'd built a life with your partner, with Shannon Bennett, who's an extraordinary chef. You've brought six, like I can't believe I'm saying this, six incredible kids into the world. That's such a thing to build together. How then do you decide actually we're better apart? Look, I've always been cognizant of the fact that it is, we commonly think it's easier to stay in a situation that is not quite right. And it doesn't have to be cataclysmic. There can just be a sense that we are not fulfilling each other anymore in the way that you'd hope a partnership would because this archaic notion that a relationship is for life, and I'm saying archaic in a positive way that we aspire to have that kind of relationship, but we change and it's really hard for people to grow together as individuals when they've got lots of other things pulling them apart, career concerns, um, health concerns, family concerns, things that can divide you. So I'm the first to put my hand up and say it would have been easier to stay in the sense that our kids want a happy family, what looks like a happy family, the nuclear ideal, mum and dad in the same house doing the same things. It's frequently not the reality anymore, that people do go their separate ways. So I'm really aware of how hard this has been for my kids, but I do believe intrinsically that giving my kids a front row seat to their parents in unhappiness wasn't protecting them and wasn't giving them a blueprint for what a happy life or happy relationship can look like. Um, so there again was a cost and I'm so aware of that and it ruffled plenty of feathers. I'm aware of that. Um, but like I said earlier, there's sometimes a necessary cost. And so I stepped away and took the risk knowing that 
sometimes there is a lot of fear involved in change, but the start is taking the risk and life-changing experiences are called life-changing because they have the power to change your life if you're brave enough to take them. And you are one brave woman. You're just extraordinary, Mads. I think about, you know, my parents split up when I was younger and it's the best thing that actually could have happened to me. Yeah, do you feel that now? Like in, at, the, at the moment, it was devastating, correct? Of course. Just- when I was, they first told me, I thought my world and life had ended as I knew mm. it. And because I didn't have a sense of how unhappy they both were because they were good at putting on the smiley, happy face. The front. Yes. Yep. And then when, though, they explained, you know, when Dad, I remember Dad actually, he took us to the movies. He took us to see Star Wars and then he never came home. <laughs> I mean, we saw him, of course, he, he's a big part of my life, but he then, yeah, dropped us off and then off he went. And then Mum was the one who had to tell us, oh, actually, we've decided to handled. split up. Exactly. However... I do know that for my parents, looking at them, they fell in love again, they found their soulmates, and I wouldn't have the relationship that I have with my parents today, and I wouldn't be who I am if they hadn't have taken that brave step that you have now done to live a full life, a life that you want to say, I'm entitled to be happy, or I'm entitled to actually want more for myself. And by doing that, I believe then you want more for your kids because you show them the possibility and the change is possible. Yeah, and I hope and pray that I am creating a blueprint for what it means to seek a happy life, to seek meaning, to seek purpose, especially for women. We tie up so much of our purpose with the needs of others. It's a natural, it's a biochemical drive to like to align how we see ourselves as seen through the eyes of others be they our kids our partner our friends our family and not just look deeply into ourselves and say but what do I want who am I what is my purpose is my purpose to make the perfect lunchbox that's great or is my purpose to save the planet I don't know that can sound huge but I've certainly discovered that things I dreamed of doing when I was younger I am now doing. And for a long time there, I didn't think it was possible. And so I've returned to working deeply in the philanthropic space and giving back and using my voice as a platform, which I always have to some degree, but my foundation didn't feel strong. And as much as there's been upheavals and ups and downs, I I don't feel rudderless anymore. I feel like my foundation is strong. And so when I speak, it's genuinely from my own experience. And I know some people say, why, why are you being so open with your life? Well, isn't that what we should all do? Doesn't it make the way clearer for us to all have meaningful conversations about what we want and what we need if someone else is doing it? Of it just course. takes one person to begin the waterfall and, and, the and suddenly we're all on the journey. We are. And, and by you being so open, it does pave the way for other conversations and it also paves the way for people who are probably listening at a stage in their lives where they're thinking, I'm stuck, I can't change, it's all too hard, it's impossible. But you're living your purpose and showing by the choices you are now making, actually, it is possible. And this is how I've done it. And, And we can only do that by being open and vulnerable with one another. And I'm a huge believer 
in doing that. And I think that's why you are such a special soul because I listened to your podcast, Restart, which is just sensational, where you said that you realised you'd become an actor in your own life. That was when you made that decision, you know what, I need to leave this relationship. Yeah, and and it wasn't just the relationship. It was so many components of my life that I didn't recognise anymore, but I was so busy doing the things and making mistakes, and we all make plenty of mistakes. That's life. We're human beings. But if you can learn from your mistakes, that makes you a good human being and a better human being. And part of learning from your mistakes is recognising where things don't fit. And I talked in the podcast about how there was one episode that was the tipping point for me, and it was being at a, a beautiful dinner party with friends in a beautiful house. I found myself having an impassioned conversation about placemats about placemats, those <laughs> things that you put under your plate, like about these particular placemats that are on sale and they cost a ridiculous amount of money and they're gorgeous and they coordinated with everything. But I remember sitting at that table and stepping out of myself for a moment and thinking, I've the way I've seen myself is always a woman of intellect and passion and drive who wants to do good and wants to make a difference and leave a legacy and I'm channeling all that passion into a conversation about placemats. What am I doing? What am I doing? And that was the kickoff point for me to say, my life needs to fit me. It's going to involve risks. It's going to involve fear. It's going to involve pain. But all change does and it's necessary. But we live a long time. I think the only thing we owe ourselves is to make the most of it. And you are making the most of it now. How is your life now compared to that time when you were debating placemats? <laughs> well, it's completely different. Um, I was blonde then, now I'm a brunette. Bang. No, <laughs> that's a bit facetious. But that in itself is important that, you know, when you go through a restart, you change things about your image, that the way you are seen by others, you willfully alter so that it's truer to the direction that you're going. So living from that incredible house and and acting and going to the opening of envelopes and I I say that in a nasty way, but, you know, being all dressed up with the matching shoes and the matching designer handbag, I love those things. I respect those things. They were part of that journey. That journey has ended. And now I work, um, I'm doing podcasts that are so searingly honest and open It's a struggle to get to work and not cry on a daily basis, which is great therapy. And yes, I still act, but I make sure that when I do, it's on my terms and that my family comes first and the things that are important to me come first. And if I have to sacrifice any of that to take on a role, then I probably won't. Um, And I work as a rainforest regenerator, (laughs) of all things. A couple of weeks ago, we planted a massive animal sanctuary for Aussie Ark and Rewild, which is an amazing um, American wilderness organisation, which is actually helmed by Leonardo DiCaprio, and I've just come on board as a partner with them as well. And we planted this amazing wildlife sanctuary in the middle of nowhere, casino in New South Wales, and camped in the mud and the rain for four days with our campsite being regularly washed away and planted 26,000 trees. Now, if I look at that life compared to what I was living before, there is no correlation. But I like to think 
part of the life I live now, because I work so much in philanthropy, is demonstrating we all have a responsibility to be the change that we want to see, whether that's in ourselves or in our families or our workplace or for our planet, that I like to think the little bits and pieces I'm doing have actual gravity that will be further reaching than the life I lived. And I want my kids to be proud of me. And I hope that what I'm doing now will make them proud of me. And as they grow older, they'll see, wow, if my mum can do that, then I can do that and anyone can do that. And it's never too late to change everything. everything. I, I know for sure your kids are proud of you. And if they're not now, they're probably embarrassed. I mean, I think as, as mothers, we, oh, 100%. Emba- we, you know, we embarrass our kids just by yeah, breathing. Mine's going to be, mine hitting the age <laughs> of being able to Google my sex scenes soon, Jess. Can you imagine how that's going to go down? My goodness. Now, yes, let, let's actually, let's talk about sex. I'm taking my glasses oh, off now to talk about sex. They're steaming up. <laughs> the glasses are steaming up, everyone. Ooh, I can see them. It's not just the menopause. It's the whole idea no. of talking about sex. <laughs> Petey, my husband and I, we loved you in satisfaction. Oh, my God. As Mel, you were a high-class escort with a heart of gold. And obviously you're an actor, so of course it's not real, but very, like, racy scenes, Mads. Oh, my God. How do you do that? I'm going to preface it by saying everyone should be aware that when you shoot a sex scene, it's the unsexiest thing you can do in your life. You've got bits of patches stuck in bits of places that get damp and you've got, you know, you're lying on a bed and you're all together and there's a crew of guys standing around you and girls too going, oh, I'm going for smoke, anyone want a coffee? Oh, did you see the stats on the weekend? Did you, you know, just having day-to-day conversations while you're there completely in the nutty. Do you want to be with me? I only have sex with really famous people, Johnny. I am. I promise. No. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Oh, man, you are a gift. I like women. But not that one. So what do you want? What? Oh, you're not going to tell me? What? What do you like, Johnny? What do you like? How do you do it? First of all, you have to have a very frank conversation with your co-stars. You'll often map it all out with the director and do a storyboard. And now we have intimacy coaching, which is great. We didn't have it back then. But you have an intimacy facilitator who basically gets the two actors together and says, where are your no-goes? Practice being touched, hold each other, tell each other a secret that makes you feel invested in each other and creates chemistry. Whereas before I used to be, right, get on set, get your duds off and go for it. (laughs) 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 So it's, and it's so unglamorous. I'm going to share a little story with you. When I was shooting the second series of Satisfaction, I just had my son Hendrix and he was five weeks old when I had to go back to work because I was under contract and I had to do this one scene where I was... um, getting intimate with a particular client's nether regions and for some reason it made me lactate <gasps> and it 
just flooded out of me and I was covered in fake tan and I was on white silk sheets and the milk mixed with the fake tan so it looked like a chocolate Big M spilt on the white sheets and I was lying in it while we shot the scene and I was aware, I could feel it, the letdown. It just kept going and going and going. And they called cut and I couldn't get up. I... I, I can't I can't get up right now. So everyone left the set and then the, the costume designer came in and said, Are you right? And I said, No, I'm not right. And I, and I sat up and Shauna, bless her name, looked at the puddle and went, Rightio, then let's strip the bed and sorted that out. But that's how unglamorous it is. And so I did quite a bit of that. But when you're doing that, you're kind of emulating porn. Let's be honest. You're kind of singing to what everyone's expectations of what great sex should be, and you invariably get it wrong. So Being a woman, a more mature woman now, I kind of look back at that and go, holy dooly, my perceptions of what was sexy were so out the window because every woman out there, you are your sexiest when you're just being yourself. I think it's interesting the way you say, you know, when you were thinking about doing the sex scenes and doing them, it was sort of you know, simulating porn, really, those sorts yeah. of ideas of what should be sexy. And and I often, you know, think quite a bit about in terms of modelling for then our kids, our daughters, mm. and I haven't got sons, but I know you've got sons, but about what real sex should be or look like and being able to ask for what you want. Oh, absolutely. And it's scary that we're sending a generation out who, look, let's hark back to our deep tribal heritage. Traditionally, in tribal clans, older women would be selected to teach the young men what good sex was, how to treat a woman's body, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we don't live in our village clans anymore and so young people are just guessing at what it should be and how do they do that? They Google porn. And the free porn is the violent, gross, misogynistic stuff with noises being made and actions being performed that realistically no one in their right mind is going to find pleasurable. So opening up those conversations are really difficult and I'm not going to endorse this for everyone, but there is tasteful sensual pornography that you can purchase. So if you're bringing up a teen and they're really curious, rather than deny it, because you know what, they're all going to watch it. Everyone's got screens. Everyone's got iPads these days. They're going to watch it somewhere. Maybe just buy them some tasteful stuff and go, I know you're going to look at it. So here's something that is a closer reflection to what it should really be. And pointing out that Intimacy takes all sorts of different forms and we're all curious and we'll explore many different things, hopefully, before we find what's right for us. And you want to encourage young people to do that because you don't want them getting stuck in the trap of accepting what is uncomfortable or anathema to what makes them feel good or actually diminishes how they see themselves. We don't want people to live lives like that. We want people to be curious and explore. But to just say the tipping point is where there is violence or there is any question of status involved in an interaction, that is not lovemaking. That is not normal and that is not healthy. That's my perspective 
anyone can disagree if they wish, but, yeah, I hope that that's the message that we can send out to the next generation and to ourselves. Yes, amen. You're so right with that. However, I do think we'd be next level embarrassing, Mads, if we did buy the appropriate pornography for our oh, absolutely. children. We can at least sow the seed, <laughs> you know, sow the seed at a certain age that maybe, and I'm just being expansive here because I know for a fact that kids are going to get into it. They're going to be curious about their bodies. And I suppose what it translates to is not couching curiosity in shame, to not make the next generation feel ashamed about what their body is doing because it's completely natural. And heck, if we weren't doing it, none of us would be here. So I think a lot of us, you and I just both come from generations where it was very kind of not talked about in the same way that menstruation wasn't talked about. And all of those icky bits about becoming an adult were hidden. We don't have that kind of rite of passage where a young man would go out and make his first kill or a young girl would realise that she was going through the change and we'd celebrate it with a ceremony. We don't do that. We kind of keep it hidden and embarrassed in the same way that, you know, Lo and behold, anyone knows that a girl's taking a tampon to school because it's, oh, my God, blah. It's a natural normative part of everyday function, as is sex. So finding ways to normalise it, make the conversation comfortable, and I really think that's important when we hit our restart. Like how do we actually discover, as mature men and women, what we want what lights our fire? What lights us up? Beyond just career and lifestyle and, and matrimony or going into a divorce to seek a change, what makes us sensually feel whole? What makes us feel sexy? It's a really difficult question to ask. And if you're re-entering the dating fray, um, often people say, well, if you feel thinking about getting intimate, just ask them what they like. So, but I don't even know what I like. So how do I ask someone else what they like if I don't know what I like? And we're just going to go, what do you like? What do you like? I don't know. I don't know what I like. Well, let's just guess. That's not sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. And and you see, you say about, you know, when we get into that next stage of our lives, because I read about where you were talking about feeling terrified of being yep. intimate with a new partner, especially thinking, oh my goodness, if he's seen me do these certain things on screen, there's this expectation. Yeah. So how did you manage that or navigate through that? Look, at first, it wasn't great because I did do that. I started kind of trying to act like a woman half my age, and I'm not. I, it was about perspective, Jess. It was about not apologising for my experience and my age and what I'd been through and the fact that I'd had six kids and, and the fact that there was a perception tied to me if you looked me up on Google and looked up some of the sex scenes I'd done before, um, not apologising for that and, and and rather making it a positive and going, my body's amazing. Look what it was able to do and it's still up and it's still functional and it still wants to be touched and it still wants to love and it still wants to hold and be held. And so when I was able to step away from performing again, I said earlier, a pivotal part of my restart was recognising I was being an actor in my own life and I was following a script that was not my design and really diving into what do I want in my life? What makes me feel good? And if that's not enough for you, this raw cut, then I'm not going to continue playing this role. It's going to be me because someone out there will, will invest in this and I'll invest in them. And I sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but I guess the pivotal point was entering that central space, not acting, 
being in it, reacting to it and letting myself go off script, asking questions, being curious, not having to pose, not pretending to be anyone that I wasn't. And if that meant going, this isn't working for me and I don't like it, then say it. And daring to be different and daring to, as you say, do things differently because I think especially as women we get to that point in our lives where we want to make people feel happy or comfortable or say the right thing and keep everyone else's sort of show going on. So it can be very difficult to get out of that lane and then speak in a different way and suddenly draw that line in the sand and say, this isn't serving me these choices. So I'm going to make different choices. It's hard. It's really, really hard. It's really, really hard to do, but so's algebra. (laughs) And (laughs) so is formulating the shopping list. So is driving a manual. I can't drive a manual. I can't hear, hear. I'm giving you a high five to that one. (laughs) Life is, I think the key is choose your hard. Like, Know your limits, know your capacity, choose your heart, knowing that most things in life will be hard. But if it's worth it, then it's worth the effort. That all good things in life are worth making the effort to achieve. And I don't want to be on my deathbed looking back and going, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done that. I'm happy to acknowledge that there are things that cost me to make the choices I've made, but ultimately they're towards an end goal. That there's, so that's the way I want to frame it. I don't want regrets in life. I want costs. I want costs knowing I invested in something. It cost me. It might have cost some, someone who was dear, dear to me, but got all of us to that next step. That's evolution. So otherwise we might as well still be in the caves wearing tiger skins or climbing trees. We might as well put ourselves back there. If we're going to evolve in our own lives, there are necessary costs and there are risks and there is discomfort. And it's also living. It's about living. It's about living a full life and realising that often the real joy comes from, I mean, it's the cliche, but comes from the pain, comes from the difficulty, comes from the struggle. You've got to go through that to experience the joy. The joy and to feel the happiness. Otherwise, we might as well be all on antidepressants and just be living this kind of quite monotone life that's got no joy or pain. I love my antidepressants, though, Mads, I've got to say. I'm not saying you shouldn't (laughs) love your your antidepressants, but as long as you've got your antidepressants and you're still aware what it feels like to live fully. And sometimes you can't appreciate that until you've been to the very depths. Yes, you're absolutely right. And you're someone at different points of your life, I think, who's been to those depths. And you're so self-aware though. And I think back to when you were hit by a bus, when you began Neighbours and reading about your experiences and your insight into that, how you went back to the spot because you realised you you were really very panicked and you would have panic attacks if if you'd hear a bus or you were frozen outside a shop one time. Yeah. Because I was still holding on to all that trauma, all that trauma that I thought I had processed and I'd gone around giving inspirational talks about it and I'd extrapolated on a lot and, yeah, it was a really critical component for me reconciling the importance of my appearance because my appearance had never really played such a prominent role in my life until I started on Neighbours when the exterior, the aesthetic became a, a, a massive part of who I was and my value. And being hit by that bus at a young age made me recognise that 
if I was to let that destroy me, because it threatened my acting career, it threatened my sense of self. Because I thought, if I'm if I'm not this pretty little poppin anymore, then no one's going to employ me. Because I mistook the way I looked with being my value. That I thought that my ability and all I had to offer the world was tied intrinsically with my appearance. And I was wrong because your appearance makes up a tiny portion of who you are. And if you're going to shove all your dreams, all your hopes, all your ambitions, all your wants, needs, all your love into that tiny little piece, then how much of you are you missing out on and how much is the world missing out on? And so I was able to reconcile that. The bus was really important in teaching me that. But there was a whole bunch of trauma that I didn't address, that I'd put a Band-Aid over and that in itself was the, one of the big kicking off points for doing Restart, was acknowledging that so many of us are walking around thinking we've dealt with our stuff that can go back generations. All we've done is put a Band-Aid over it. And at some point, like Mount Vesuvius, it's going to explode. So having these conversations, taking these risks, taking a chance on restarting means the discomfort is in opening up old wounds and reaching inside and pulling out that trauma and really analysing what happened and acknowledging that, yes, you might have been a part of it, but you're not to blame for it and it shouldn't stop you living a full life because often those scabs, those scars are what contract our lives. We think, well, that happened, so I'm not good enough, so I can't, I can't push any further. Once you crack it open, like going back to that bus accident showed me that life-changing experiences are just that. They're life-changing experiences because they have the power to change your life, but you have to let them first. You have to be brave enough to go, that was that trauma. Rather than just hiding it away and sitting on it, I'm going to open it up and go, wow, if I till that soil, I, can, I might just be able to grow some amazing flowers. Jeez, that's a that's a You're weird a beautiful, metaphor. No, but but no, you know what I mean? I love it. You would be, what would you be? I think you'd be something exotic, extraordinary, strong, and rare. I think you'd only like... Bird of paradise? Yeah, well... I've got the colours. I've got the blues and the oranges. <laughs> but, the... <laughs> but you're not spiky. But... God, hang on a minute. <laughs> you haven't seen me very early on a school drop-off morning, Jess. I'm very spiky and jabby. But I want to ask you about ripping that Band-Aid off. You went back to the site of where the yep. bus hit you and you there was a woman called Karen. Karen, right in the middle of the... So this is right at the beginning of, of coronavirus when Karens became a euphemism for all the worst people in society. And she, she wasn't, though. Wasn't. So, no. so what did she do? You didn't know this person. She, oh, she didn't know me um, and I didn't know her. And I'd gotten to the bus stop and had a full panic attack. I just, I can't even explain it succinctly. I just had a bit of a meltdown. So I was huddled at that bus stop and I was having a cry and she put a hand on my shoulder and she just said, are you all right? And as I said earlier, we go through our lives going, I'm fine, we should catch up with that coffee. And the temptation to put the Band-Aid back on and go, no, I'm fine, fell off and I went, no, I'm not. I'm really not. And I told her the whole story. And she said, look, what if I just sit with you for a while? And she literally just sat with me and held my hand. And I'm sure that anyone passing by thought we were a couple of kooks because with every bus that went past, I would have palpitations again. I'd have a freak out attack. And she sat with me until it didn't upset me anymore. She sat with me for four hours. Like that's unheard of. And other people stopped 
and asked what we were doing and would have chats and move around and there was a convenience store behind us. At one point we both got up and got a snack and things like that. But she just sat with me and it was such a demonstration for me of the kindness of strangers that we often invest in relationships where it's like a give and take, there's some kind of an agenda that's transactional. There was nothing transactional about it. At the end I, I thanked her and I said, oh, can I take you out for lunch or something? And she just said, no, just just be happy. And I don't even have her number. I don't even know her surname. But she was there for me. And um, it taught me the power of kindness. And I think that's something I try really hard. That's why I've become so invested in philanthropy, that simple treating another person with kindness, respect, empathy and compassion is something we overlook and it's something we rarely teach our children, that we teach them manners and we teach them arithmetic, we teach them how to function in the world and how to operate on their iPads, but the simple power of kindness, that those little acts that cost nothing, yes, it was four hours out of her day, but it didn't cost her anything, are priceless for the person receiving it and life-changing and so life-affirming. And she was there for me and now I hope I can be there for other people and I'm hoping that by doing this podcast restart, I'm being there for other people because already I've had so many people reach out to me and say, I'm stuck, like you said earlier, I'm so unhappy, this is my situation or I'm contemplating doing this and I don't know how to take the first step or just the whispered comments from friends who will say, how would you do it? Like I finally come out on the other side and I go, how would you do it? And I go, you just do it. Listen to this, listen to your heart, listen to your head. It'll never take you in the wrong direction. Oh, I want to give you the biggest hug and I want to give Karen a hug. Karen, I hope you are listening to what you did for Mads on that day and for all of us too to take a moment to think the difference that simple act, that random act of kindness can mean to someone and as oh. you say, how life-changing it can be. Yeah. And that's what I, I hope me telling my story will be an act of kindness that allows someone else to tell theirs. And even if it means that they just go to someone in their life and go, this is happening to me and I'm scared or actually I really appreciate this job but it doesn't work for me or say to their kids that I'm, I'm telling you to reach for the stars, but I'm doing a job I don't like to pay the mortgage. Just to speak our truth is the beginning of everything and it's never too late to change everything. And it isn't. And I could talk to you for days. I want to, but, <laughs> but I'm not. But give me a number, honey. Oh, just yes, call please. Me. And I won't just say, let's do coffee. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. You will say, actually, because you Let's, know when you crack open those conversations and you say, actually, I feel really crap, the other person go, I do too. And suddenly go, let's unpack it. Let's sit down. Say yes to life. Yes. Say yes to every opportunity to speak your truth because exactly. it will never do you harm. It, it will only do you good. It won't. But where I just want to finally finish, because I feel like I need to touch on this as well, six kids. I've got two daughters and that does my head in. How on earth, I know people would ask you this all the time, but six kids, how do you do it, Matt? Well, I have shared parenting with their dad now and I find when they are with me, they are my sole focus 
And when they're not, that is when I work. So I don't let the two worlds collide. So I'm in a really luxurious position there. But I know what it's like to be doing all the things and have all the balls in the air. And it doesn't matter whether you have one child or 20. Their modus operandi is to turn your life upside down, give it a good shake and steal your wallet. Just accept that, that things will go wrong. But we spend so much time crucifying ourselves for not being good enough. I think for me, the key is acknowledging that I am far from perfect and I make decisions that might not fit with what my kids think I should be doing or make them immediately happy, but I am the most imperfectly perfect parent they could wish for and all they want is me. So if I give generously of myself and accept that things will go wrong sometimes and just reward them with love, unconditional love, and be a place that they can come to. I want my kids as they grow, grow older to feel like when they have problems they can run towards me, not, not away from me, then that for me is being a good parent. Um, and a big part of that has been acknowledging that to restart I had to explain to my kids that I am mum and that is my most precious role, but I'm also Madeline the actor and the activist and the author and the friend and the person who likes to go and see movies and the person who has a new partner in her life and I need to give a bit of oxygen to all those Madelines to be the best Madeline I can be and that means being the best mum I can be. And so embrace the struggle and acknowledge that the lie that we're often fed as women that we can have it all is a lie. It's just that. It's lie. So focus on not what you should do but what you can do and do that well. If it means you don't do everything, that's okay. And make sure that you adopt the methodology that they adopt on aeroplanes. If there's a crisis and they drop an air mask, put it on yourself first. Because if you're not functioning, if you're not strong, and if you are not settled and you are not stable, your kids won't be. The greatest legacy you can leave your kids is to live a healthy, wealthy, meaningful life yourself. Mads, you are enough. I just adore you. You are a warrior woman. I would like to have you in my cupboard at home so I could open up that cupboard whenever I'm <laughs> feeling lost and wondering oh. what to do. You're like this oracle. <laughs> See, I am making loads of my mistakes myself all the time, Jess. I look at you and you're an oracle. We all are. We've all got to have each other's backs in this oh. life. We live too long being disenfranchised from each other. If we support each other, then we can achieve anything. Oh, and we can. And thank you for blazing your trail because you are exceptional. So much love and I just cannot wait to see more of what you do with Restart. Oh, Jess, thank you so much. Oh, don't you think so much of what Mad says makes such good sense? And also too, I think she's a bit of an oracle, almost like a Yoda, you could say, when it comes to thinking about how can I restart, reimagine my life? But of course, she doesn't say it in a backwards way like Yoda. Now, if you want to hear more from Madeline, her podcast, Restart, is available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts. And for more beautiful big conversations like this, search the Jess Rowe 
Big Talk Show podcast. And while you're there, tap follow, tell your friends, shout it out to the sky above, add me to your favourites because if I'm not a favourite already, surely I can be your favourite now. I don't want you to ever miss an episode. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.